Welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is ever is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse film discussion group. And if you have just found our show, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are, of course, thrilled to have you back. It's a very special opportunity when you can commemorate a 100-year anniversary of anything, especially a beloved film that, thanks to its star and its evergreen ability to make us laugh, never gets old. So this month, we tip our cap to a centenarian of cinema, Safety Last, directed by Fred C. Neumeyer and Sam Taylor, which was originally released on April 1st, 1923. Starring the incomparable Harold Lloyd, one of the most popular and talented of all the silent screen comedians, this is the film made particularly famous for its second half, in which a store clerk must climb the facade of a high-rise building in Los Angeles and survive several highly dangerous but hilarious escapades, including hanging precipitously from the hand of a giant clock. Yes, you've seen that image, we all have. These incredible visuals were accomplished with the help of carefully choreographed stunt work and clever practical special effects, but make no mistake, Harold and his collaborators took serious personal risks in making this movie, which makes it all the more fascinating to re-examine ten decades later. Joining me in this month's exploration are two terrific guests who are the ideal experts to discuss Harold Lloyd and this picture. I'm going to be speaking with TV actor, director, screenwriter, and producer Richard Carell, who serves as chief archivist for the Lloyd Trust, as well as Suzanne Lloyd, Harold's granddaughter and the president of Harold Lloyd Entertainment. Now, together we will examine why Safety Last is worthy of celebration a century later, ways it has stood the test of time, its influence on pop culture, and much, much more. So lots of fun facts and great conversation is in store for you listeners. Sit back and enjoy as we pay our proper respects to one of the masters of the craft of silent comedy, Mr. Harold Lloyd. If you joined us last month for the big King Kong 90th birthday celebration, you probably remember that, yes, we did have Richard Carell on as one of the esteemed guests. So we are delighted to have him return to the Cineversary microphone for this installment. And yeah, it's just a coincidence, right, that he was an instrumental player in reviving King Kong on its reissue. And yeah, he's the archivist for the Harold Lloyd Trust, so small world. Ahead of my chat with Suzanne and Richard, let's take a moment and attempt to better understand the who, what, where, when, and why behind Safety Last with the help of our good friends at Wikipedia. Safety Last is a 1923 American silent romantic comedy film starring Harold Lloyd. It includes one of the most famous images from the silent era, Lloyd clutching the hands of a large clock as he dangles from the outside of a skyscraper above moving traffic. The film was highly successful and critically hailed and it cemented Lloyd's status as a major figure in early motion pictures. It is still popular at revivals, and it is viewed today as one of the great film comedies ever. 
The film's title, Safety Last, is a play on the common expression, safety first, which prioritizes safety as a means to avoid accidents, especially in workplaces. The Library of Congress added Safety Last to its National Film Registry in 1994, and the American Film Institute nominated the movie for both its 1998 and 2007 lists of the 100 greatest American films of all time. It was also nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list, and it placed 97 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list. Head over to Rotten Tomatoes and you'll see that Safety Last earns a robust 97% fresh rating and an average critical score of 8.8 out of 10, as well as an audience score of 93%. Yeah, it's kind of pointless to warn you about spoilers for this film, as the plot isn't nearly as important as the visuals, uh, the sight gags, the slapstick, the infectiously likable personality of Harold Lloyd, right? So... Instead of cautioning you about spoilers this month, how about spoiling yourself to 74 minutes of laughs and thrills by just going and watching this priceless piece of vintage entertainment for the first time if you've not yet had the pleasure? It will definitely make the next 50 minutes of conversation much more enriching. Trust me. Okay, time to raise the curtain and introduce our guests. The legacy of comedian Harold Lloyd is in good hands, thanks to the devoted efforts of two individuals in particular who are responsible for preserving and archiving his works and who have agreed to appear on our show. It is my pleasure to introduce Harold's granddaughter, Suzanne Lloyd, who serves as president of Harold Lloyd Entertainment, and Richard Carell, chief archivist for the Lloyd Trust. Hello, Suzanne and Richard, and welcome to the Cineversary Podcast. Hi. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great today. It's great to be here, and thank you for putting in so much time and, and honoring Harold's 100th anniversary of Safety Last. I couldn't ask for better guests for this particular episode. So thrilled that you both said yes. Thank you again. So let's get right to it, folks. Uh, can either of you recall when and where you each watched first uh, Safety Last and your initial reaction? Well, the first time I saw a segment from it, was in a film called Harold Lloyd's World of Comedy, where he had a piece of it where he actually goes out of the window and hangs on the clock, which was the most famous part of the movie. That film featured uh, almost the entire climb from a movie called Feet First, which was how the movie ended. But that's the first time I saw Safety Last. Now, before that, and I was a, I was a young, I was a, like 13 years old. Before that, I'd always been fascinated by movies. And so... Harold Lloyd was somebody I knew about, but because he had vaulted his films, it was hard to see a lot of his stuff. Okay. But I had read a lot about him and especially about the thrill comedies he made. And of course, Safety Last being the most famous one. Yeah. So when did you see it? The first time I was about nine years old and I had accompanied my grandparents to, and my mother was with me, Gloria, to the Cannes Film Festival where they were honoring him. So this is 62 for World of Comedy that Richard was just speaking about. And I hadn't seen Safety Last all the way through, but they showed World of Comedy at the Cannes Film Festival. Okay. And I was sitting a few, funny, I was sitting a few rows in front of Harold, or dad, as I called him. And he was behind me, I don't know, three rows. And the climb started. And my hands started getting a little sweaty. And I thought, well, this is kind of like, wow, this is unbelievable. And I mean, I was taken away in the character of who was on the screen and he was younger and everything else. But my rock was my grandfather, Harold, who and I kept turning around going, 
oh my God, well, he's sitting there and he's okay. <laughs> and if they say that this is him right. up on the screen, he's going to be, I guess he'd be okay unless he isn't. Unless he had a twin brother or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like completely. Well, he didn't at that point. He looked like a businessman with graying hair mm -hmm. and he wore suits. And I mean, even though Harold's character basically did wear common street clothes, it wasn't the same person that you saw up on the screen yeah. from 1923 to 1962. So that was my first introduction. And Amazing. It scared the hell out of me. I'll bet. And I kept like looking at him going like, really? He really did that? I mean, it was... <laughs> Anyway, he did do that. Quite astounding. And it was fun because my grandmother was there, too, who was his leading lady, Mildred Davis. Right, who also was in, in the, the film. film. Right. Mm-hmm. How fascinating. What great memories. Wow. And I loved your interview on the Criterion Collection version of this disc, which your both of your fingerprints are all over that. Just love it. And, uh, you know, had some fun consuming that uh, the last couple of days. So, yeah, you shared some uh, interesting memories there. So, listeners, if you want to check that Criterion disc out, lots of good extra stuff on there. What makes Safety Last such a masterpiece, such a classic of its time and of any time for that matter? So why does it deserve to be celebrated 100 years later? How has it stood the test of time? And what do you think makes it a distinctive work of cinematic art? It's very, very unique, Safety Last. And, but what's really cool about it is that it's a great vision of 1923 city life. Hmm. There was a whole section cut out of the beginning of it where Harold was working on a like construction crew that was digging ditches and things. And he never, the character thought, oh, I'm not making it. This isn't great. And the foreman and the construction crew talks him into going into the big city. So before even the train scene, there was a whole half a reel of stuff that was actually cut out after they previewed it. But it's a great view of the American city life in 1923. And more importantly than that, Harold Lloyd, unlike Chaplin and Keaton, was also somebody who portrayed kind of the, the U.S. everyman at the time. And that's why he was so popular. And more than any other film is, you know, he's a city guy or a, a country guy swallowed up by the big city and he's trying to make it and there's all the competition and, you know, he's trying to impress his girlfriend. A lot of things that were going on in people's minds during the, that time was actually reflected in that movie. So I think that's what's, you know, one of the things that's really important about it. The other thing is, is nobody was better than Harold Lloyd at mixing uh, like scary, you know, thrilling, you know, almost, you know, nerve wracking stuff with comedy. And and he was aware even back in those days that if you get people to scream or you scare them, they end up first they scream, then they laugh. Yes. And that's why it was such a successful movie, because in movie houses in those days, if you visited or even stood outside the movie theater, you would hear people screaming and then you would hear people laughing. And so it moved an audience so well because it had both of those emotions tied together and i think that was really smart of fred newmeyer and sam taylor and harold lloyd to come up with that right. um he had made two thrill movies before that one in 1918 called look out below and one in 1920 called high and dizzy mm -hmm. and both of those films really affected audience as well so he was you know thinking about doing another film like that and then he saw bill struthers climb a building who actually ended up one of the cast members and doubling for Harold in the long shots. Is that the human fly that has been discussed? Yeah, and, and Stoes was known in real life as a human fly. Mm. So he saw this guy performing these stunts, and it scared him. He saw him on the street doing it. It scared Harold. He said, if it scares me, it's going to scare an audience. Wow. But, I mean, the fact that 
he was able to take thrills and laughs and mix them together so uniquely. And the fact that that's such an Americana movie from 1923, you see the cars, you see the street cars, you see people in the street, you see fashions, you see buildings, you see what people were doing. All of that's really important. And so that makes it a really important movie. Absolutely. Well articulated, sir. Uh, Sue, what do you think? Uh, what makes it uh, such a classic 100 years later? Well, I completely agree with what Richard had to say. You know, the amazing thing is Harold was a actor. And as Hal Roach said, an actor playing a comedian. Mm -hmm. And but I think his underlying line of, with his work, he formed a brand and a package of films that really said what his comedy was about. Mm -hmm. And if you went to a Harold Lloyd movie, you knew what basically you were going to expect. And by his encountering Bill Struthers down on the streets of Los Angeles, watching him really climb the building in person and how affected he was, it shows that he wasn't really, he was an actor, but he was really a producer. And he was always thinking about how to produce his films and how to portray that character that he called the glasses character. And he always, when he spoke about it, kind of kept him in the third person. It wasn't like, oh, I, Harold, did that. Mm -hmm. It was the glasses character. So he was producing it. And I think that those two combinations on making any of his films really stood out at the time. And he wanted to do things that were realistic. He wanted to be a real comedian. He wanted to be, you know, the person on the street or the boy next door yeah. or your cousin or your brother-in-law. I mean, he, that's where he wanted it. It was all about real life. And the second subplot on it was the reason he was climbing the building and going for the goal was because he was trying to impress the girl <laughs> and ask her to marry him, which was always the second plot in any basically Harold Lloyd movie. Okay. Yeah, consistent through line there in terms of a narrative device throughout a lot of his uh, his his works. This is a timeless laugher, right, from a century ago, arguably made with a higher ratio of, of laughs per minute than any silent film or classic movie ever made, at least in my estimation. I mean, there are, it's just chock full of gags. I understand Keaton and Chaplin made equally impressive and funny works. And Lloyd probably topped himself in things I haven't even seen of this era. It's It's quite likely. But boy, is it just infused with yucks throughout. It features the most instantly recognizable image in silent films. It's this bespectacled man hanging from a clock 12 stories above the ground. And I think the ubiquity and the timelessness, no pun intended there, of that image underscores how important and beloved this film remains in pop culture. I recall, do you, do you remember this, about 10 years ago? There was that uh, CoverGirl TV commercial in which uh, Sofia Vergara is hanging from a giant clock face and it resembles the one in Safety Last. I think that really underscores how pervasive this iconography is. So you, you still get nods to it in pop culture, and that says a lot about the lasting influence of, of a work like this, right? Yes. For, you know, you've got Back to the Future. You have Martin Scorsese in Harold's and Martin Scorsese's Hugo. There was an article that just ran in the New York Times in the U.S. and internationally with a brochure with Harold off the clock wow. for the biggest clock watchmakers in the world. This was 
of February the 14th, actually. Yes, they always refer back to it. And it is, it is, I think it's probably the most iconic image of the silent film era. Yeah, not just silent comedies. I think the whole silent film era. Now that's debatable, but uh, in my opinion, I, I don't think it can be topped in terms of just how pervasive in the culture that has become. The events, the incredible stunts, to me, they, they look and feel real. And that's largely because the movie was shot on location outdoors in L.A., using actual buildings and featuring non-acting crowds that arrive to watch, right? I mean, it looks authentic because Lloyd himself and that human fly stuntman you mentioned, they actually scale that building. They use a circus performer, from what I understand, you know, for the foot hanging uh, from a rope scene. Lloyd and these performers, they took, of course, significant risks and they jeopardized their lives to some extent to, to, to make the action appear as genuine as possible. They didn't have special effects in those days uh, like they have today, of course, but they could have used matte paintings. They could have used rear screen projection to a large extent to kind of cover up some of these stunts. But to me, this stunt work is all the more remarkable considering that, you know, he lost a thumb and an index finger on one of his hands a few years earlier. So the more you learn about Harold Lloyd, the more and the more you know how the sausage is made, so to speak, it just becomes all that more impressive. Well, the thing about Harold personally was that he was, somebody that wouldn't ever let any obstacle get in his way. Yeah. The accident that he had in 1919 to his hand just actually made him more motivated to go out and do stuff. And when they were discussing this movie, again, this was the third of his thrill movies. They said to him, oh, oh well, do you feel up to doing that? And he said, are you kidding? Come on, watch this. So he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't going to let an injury to his hand hold yeah. him back. And in those days, especially during the 20s, the night, you know, 1900, the early the teens and the 20s. In those days, I mean, he was in unbelievably good shape. I'll bet. Great athlete, great acrobat, completely in control of his body. You know, if you're going to go up on ledges and stuff and look at, make it look like you're out of control, or that you're almost falling, you actually have to really be in control and really know what you're doing with your body physically. And he was one of the best physical comedians ever. Was he trained classically as an acrobat in some extent? Uh, or how did he get these skills? No, he wasn't trained as an acrobat. I mean, he always had, he was always kind of tumbling around and playing ball and climbing trees and doing things like that. But he was always in great shape. So he prided himself in the fact that he always stayed in great shape. He, in some of the movies, you see him smoking once in a while. He didn't smoke in real life. He didn't drink in real life. He was always really an athlete. And so he did a lot of exercising. He, he wasn't a professional tumbler like Keaton was. And um, and for that matter, neither was Chaplin, who was also a fantastic physical comedian. Oh, sure. But but Lloyd was um, just the kind of guy that could jump out of a window or climb up a tree or do, you know, 30 pull-ups and 55, you know, sit-ups and push-ups. And he was always, always, always in great shape. And he prided, it, it was, it made him proud to be in great shape. He was well-built and he just was in control of his body. Mm. He, As I said, he wasn't a professional tumbler, but... He did an awful lot of stuff like that, that it just came to him naturally. With his first leading lady, B.B. Daniels, he used to do dance, they used to do dance contests and he was a great dancer. And the other physical thing, the one thing that he did was with his producing partner and good friend, Hal Roach. And this was, he did it before and then after the accident with his hand in 1919 of losing his thumb, his index finger and half of his right palm. He played handball, and we actually had a handball court up at Greenacres, his home that he built in Beverly Hills. And it was for a, 
you could see a hundred people in the stand wow. above it. It was mm. a it was a professional handball court that they use for national champions, and playing handball is very hard. But that's how he strengthened his hand to you know get it get what he could and get it into the strongest shape he possibly could have by missing you know his thumb and his index finger and half of that palm well the interesting thing also is he was like a professional bowler he won the la uh, examiner bowling contest two years in a row by bowling 300s he was on a really 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 good bowling team that he was like the captain of and he had a ball made that had a notch in it instead of the three holes for your fingers because i mean try bowling without a thumb and an index finger you think that's impossible but he was able to go to the authorities who like governed those games and say look this is a special ball i had made it's not any different from any other ball it's just easier for me to get my injured hand into the notches and they said okay once they approved it just like the guy in safety last he said okay i'm going to go out and i'm going to figure this out i'm going to be better than anybody else i'm going to practice 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 until i can do it and then he beat everybody and that's in real life that's not even in the movie so safety last is a really good reflection of harold how he really was in real life that's exactly how he was if he got a project like when he went into 3d photography Mm -hmm. He knew everything about it. He became president of the Photography Society of America. And finally, they said, Harold, you can't compete with the amateurs because you're not an amateur. and You're just not. You're a professional photographer. And he was a great photographer. And it was the way he approached, I think, making his movies. He wanted the best of the best. And he kept the best people around. He was very collaborative with keeping his crews around. And it was his strive and the strength of energy he had in him, in his own personality, in films and also in real life, that made him just say, okay, I'm going to do it the best I can and be the winner. And he had that just go-getter attitude that wasn't going to keep him down. And there was a funny story that they said sometimes if he worried about something in a script or he's working on a show or something he'd finally get frustrated and he put up a sign and say okay why worry which is his next film after safety last and he just put it up on the wall and say to the guys hey why worry oh so that's that's where alfred e newman got that slogan huh that's right that's right (laughs) and that's what he used to do he just put it put a like piece of paper and and they said in red ink and just put it up and say why worry and let it let it go Mm. Um, his personality, I think, and Richard would agree with me, really is very similar to his his acting character. I mean, you're talking about a real Renaissance man, like somebody who, if he didn't go into filmmaking, he could have been the next Jim Thorpe, right? He could have just <laughs> excelled at uh, all kinds of different uh, athletic and artistic endeavors, which uh, speaks a lot to his talents. So, Richard, uh, Suzanne, if you want to briefly, if you don't mind, just just explain to listeners how they were able to pull off this climb here. What was real versus illusion in filming the climb? The uh, the beginning of the climb was shot on the Roach lot. It's where he starts up and then grabs a hold of the awning and then the awning falls and hits the cop on the head. So that was actually him climbing up about 12 feet. Mm-hmm. And that was in a notched, the side of that building was notched for the purpose of climbing. What I say when I say notched, it's not only indentations made for the brick, but there were actually notches underneath that you could cur- curl your hands around to get up on. Well, that's good. From that point on, from the second floor to the fifth floor to the ninth floor, the clock was shot nine stories up. And the top of the movie where he's on the very top of the building was shot 14 stories up. 
those are a different buildings that went up and down Broadway and downtown LA. And what they did was, as you probably already know, they got on the buildings, uh, or sorry, they got on the roofs of these buildings and they built a set that the, the clock was built on a set. That's actually a set that was built that has the notched brick. It has the, the clock on the top. There were people actually behind the clock. You could get behind it. That was built and put up on the side of uh, a building on a roof and then underneath it directly, and this was the same with all the stunts he did in the picture, underneath it was a platform usually piled with mattresses, a wooden platform usually, uh -huh. piled with mattresses. And then the set was slid over to the edge of the building so that if Harold was hanging on the clock and he actually fell, he would probably land on the platform because it wasn't directly on the side of the building, but it still was pretty close. They kept going higher and higher and higher and building more sets, but the the roof that he, you know, climbs on and, and staggers around and, you know, that gets them in the ledge. He has the mouse on, on his leg and all that stuff. <laughs> those are all sets. Those were sets that were built specifically for this movie. And those sets went up to around 20 feet and then were slid to the edge of the building and then mattresses put underneath it. That's how the whole thing was done. And I think mm. John Bankston and, and um, uh, Kevin Brownlow have done really good versions of showing the public how the trick was done. Harold and Hal Roach were not interested in process. They didn't like how process looked. In 1930, there is a process shot at the very end of the climb in feet first, and it doesn't look very good, actually. It's when he's actually falling. But they weren't crazy about stuff like that. It hadn't been really perfected in 1922, summer of yeah. 22, when they shot this. So they wanted to make it all practical. And all of his thrill movies before had been practical because it was always the same thing. These were sets built on roofs. And so they just figured that's the way to do it. So when you say to people watching Safety Last, Harold Lloyd was really up that high. He was. And there's no trick photography. There wasn't. But there was obviously you know, methods used to keep him from really getting hurt or killing himself. He always said, I didn't go up there to kill myself, but I did take a lot of chances. You know, Harold himself did a couple of interviews where he said, well, the only thing underneath me were these platforms with mattresses on it, but that's not actually accurate because there were, there were the crew was standing on a roof. Mm -hmm. and so was the camera crew. The camera crew was up on a scaffold and the scaffold was parallel to the set shooting down across the roof so you wouldn't see the platform beneath it. But from uh, some of the long shots, uh, you do see climbers. Now, in s most of those scenes, it's the human fly performer, right? right? But in some, it is Harold himself who's taking actual risks, right? No, in the long shots, it's always Bill Struthers. And safety okay. last, there's a beautiful shot that's taken up really, really, really high where he's kind of approaching the clock. By the way, they put a mock-up clock on that building, a real building. Okay. And, then, and then Bill Struthers claimed it. And what you also don't see is uh, Roach refused, much to the chagrin of Bill Struthers, refused to have him climb the building at any point without being wired onto the building, which they used piano cord, very, very, very thin piano cord, enough to hold up a man. But had Struthers tripped and fallen, because he had fallen about a month before the movie started, production he fell from a three-story climb he was doing he broke his leg wow and he's got a cast on and is limping during the movie that's why they call him limpy bill <laughs> okay but he's actually strapped onto the building even in the long shots because uh. roach wouldn't allow him he struthers just wanted to climb it but roach was nervous about that and said you're going to be on the side of the building longer than normal because we're shooting so you 
you've got to be strapped on. There's a very rare man. I haven't seen it in years, but there was a really, really, really rare still in Harold's collection, an eight by 10 still off of a plate negative that shows the wires on Struthers, but they, yeah, you don't see it in the movie, but everybody, look, they took a lot of, of caution to do this stuff. It, all of the stuff that you see on the side of the building is Harold. But the long shots is Bill Struthers. Right. Yeah. You actually see Harold uh, scaling the first story or two because they, they you know, the camera is, is pulled back a bit. It certainly looks like him when he's uh, getting his feet off from the ground level uh, and starting to scale it. Right. Well, yeah, that is right. Mm -hmm. That's what I was saying. That set was built on the Roach lot. You see it appear in a few more Laurel and Hardy movies. Uh, it's in Liberty, strangely enough, in 1929, which happens also to be another thrill picture that Laurel and Hardy made almost exactly the same sets as Never Weaken, which Harold did in 21. So he actually did climb that part of it, but that only went up about 14 feet, which, okay. you know, you don't want to fall off 14 no, feet. No, I mean, uh, let's face it. I mean, he could have gotten severely injured as, as could have, uh, you know, Limpy Bill, but uh, they took a lot of precautions. And, and the nice thing is you, you can't, most of them are invisible. You can't really see anything. That would give away the, the magic. Yeah, and the cool thing is, if you, as I said, I've shown that picture to audiences, and I, I tell the audiences, now when you see Harold Lloyd up there, he's really up that high. Mm. That clock is nine stories above the ground. You, know, you see him climbing up the side of a building, he's really nine, ten stories. That's a person nine, ten stories up there. But you don't say, well, one guy was wired on and the other guy was working with, with a platform beneath it. Yeah, mattresses and so forth. But nevertheless, yeah, Suzanne, did your grandfather recall being frightened or intimidated by any of the stunts involved in this film, especially the climbing? You know, it's interesting. Harold would take us to the circus and he loved the circus and going to places, you know, and he would always get up and say, hey, you want some popcorn? You want a drink? You want a hot dog? You want something? When the trapeze and the and the tightrope act would come on. And finally, remember, we I busted him. I said, well, every time, you know, you just leave. And he said, I know what they're doing up there. And if I can't control it and I'm not doing it, I don't want to watch it. Mm. Interesting. Richard, do you remember that? There was a story that came out that Harold Lloyd was afraid of heights. He wasn't afraid of heights. What he said was that working on those buildings it's really unnerving to start with. And he said, but then just like anything else, you start to get used to it. And he said, the problem with getting used to it is you, once you get used to it, you take more chances. And so he said, I couldn't get quote too used to it, but I really wanted to make it look like I was in jeopardy. So I had to take more chances with my body to make sure it did look like I was in jeopardy. So he said, you know, you, you couldn't really have a fear of heights and shoot something like that, even though you would fall and land on a mattress, but you had to get used to the heights because just like the camera, if he looked off to his side, all he saw was a street nine floors below, you know, <laughs> Mildred Davis, who had to catch him at the top of the building had to put out her hands. There were two prop men off the, sitting behind that ledge where she was standing, holding her feet because she was so scared of heights. Yeah. I heard that. That's right. absolutely wow. true. That's that. Yeah. <laughs> when he swung around and she had to reach for him and, all this other stuff. That's th those guys are holding on to her feet. She probably had a hard time watching his movies. She actually only flew in an airplane once in her life, and unfortunately, we're flying to Hawaii to see her brother Jack Davis. Actually, he was in the little. He was in the original Our Gang. The plane had technical trouble. We were about an hour out, and it had to be t returned to L.A. And I'll tell you, just to get her back on that plane was. A nightmare. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she hated heights, hated it. But remember, she'd been in high and dizzy too. 
So this wasn't our first time out there on a ledge. Not her first rodeo, right? No, no, it wasn't. And I think um, she did that. And then at this point, she was engaged to him because they got married in February 10th, 1923, right before Safety Last was released mm -hmm. on April Fool's Day of 1923. Is this his highest grossing film? I'm just curious. I didn't look this up. So I know that he bankrolled in terms of box office, his contemporaries, Chaplin and Keaton, to a large extent at this time. But uh, yeah, was this uh, his most popular movie in his filmography? No, it was it was very, very popular. But the biggest moneymaker he made was The Freshman, oh, which was okay. in 1925. That was a huge moneymaker. And then strangely, an even bigger moneymaker was Welcome Danger because people wanted to hear him talk. Welcome Danger isn't the kind of film that would, you know, stand up against the freshman or the kid brother. It's it's kind of almost an experiment. It's not a great movie, but people want to hear Harold Lloyd talk. You know what I think is really strange, which is always kind of irking to me, is Harold Lloyd, especially because of the Brownlow documentaries, is called The Third Genius. Mm. And if you look at the career of Harold Lloyd, not only did he make almost three times more movies than Keaton and Chaplin, he made twice as many movies as both of them combined. He also got into the business earlier than Keaton. And when it got to be around 1920, 21, 22, he started out grossing Chaplin and Keaton, not only because he made more movies and pulled in more money per year, but his actual, I mean, Grandma's Boy, Safety Last, The Freshman, The Kid Brother, made more money than any of the contemporary comedians were making at the time, no matter who they were. So because Harold wanted to control the distribution of his movies, he vaulted, he didn't need the money. He had saved his money. He had been a good businessman. He lived in this fabulous house. You know, he wasn't some destitute guy that had to work. And, you know, he didn't get in trouble with the government and he didn't leave because of tax evasion. In 1953, when he received his Oscar, the Oscar actually said on it, master comedian and good citizen, which was kind of a slap in the face to Chaplin, who was having big problems at the time. Right. The thing about him was that he he was actually more popular, certainly box office wise, than any of the two guys that were his contemporaries or, or three guys, if you include Harry Langdon. Mm. But but Chaplin, you know, as history will say, and it's true, Chaplin's probably the biggest male film star that ever lived with Mary Pickford being the biggest female and as far as sales and how many people went to see them. But Harold Lloyd was far, far more successful than Keaton and in time at times more successful than Chaplin. So in a way it, to call him the third genius, it's like, no, not really. I mean, he got in earlier, he made more movies and he made more money. So, I mean, he was probably if Chaplin's the first genius, Lloyd was cer certainly the second and right behind Chaplin. And by the way, Harold Lloyd loved Buster Keaton's films and Buster loved Harold Lloyd movies. Yeah. Didn't they kind of imitate each other? Yeah, uh, they did. They, they, they well, bit. everybody mm -hmm. borrowed from everybody. Chaplin's, sure. Chaplin's personal assistant was having a conversation with him in 1921. And Chaplin was saying, God, you know, that Harold Lloyd movie, you know, the grandma's boy, what a great movie. That's such a great movie. That's just going to help boost his career. And the assistant wrote a letter to Harold, kind of like saying, this is what Charlie thinks of your work, and isn't it great? Hmm. And Chaplin really got pissed off huh. that that guy did that. And we have that letter. That's in one of Harold's scrapbooks from Chaplin, basically from Chaplin's office saying, wow, were we impressed with Grandma's Boy. It's such a great movie. Because Chaplin didn't <laughs> want people to know that he thought his competitor was making a great right, movie. Yeah. 
so they had a rivalry, of course, these three comedians to an extent that they were competing at the box office. But was it a friendly rivalry? Were, were the three of them friends in any way? Yeah, I mean, they were always friendly with one another. You know, Harold was just an outgoing guy who liked everybody. I mean, he didn't, you know, he was competing with these guys. But again, his his place in the movie business, he just, he felt very secure that, I mean, he was who he was. He was unbelievably successful. You know, the audiences loved him. Everybody knew who he was. His name above the marquee made a lot of money. So he was competing with these guys, but he wasn't selfish about it. I mean, I talked to him at length about Steamboat Bill Jr., about the general. I'm, both of us love the general. I talked to him about the gold rush and things like that. And he's, you know, Lonesome Luke, which was, you know, the character prior to the glasses character, was basically kind of a reverse imitation of Chaplin. And Harold admitted it. Everybody wanted to go see Chaplin, so he wanted to be a character like Chaplin. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys didn't socialize and hang out all together. But, I mean, they never had anything but nice things to say. I mean, Harold had nice things to say about Keaton up to the time, right up to when he died. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to to think about and explore. I met Chaplin with Harold. Okay. And I was maybe 10 years old, something like that. My mother was living in, in Europe. Uh, she was living in Geneva. And we we went to see her. It was in the summer. And uh, my grandparents, Mildred Davis and, and Harold, as I called them, Mimi and Daddy, they turned around and said, hey, do you, we're going to go see a, get in the car. We're going to go to uh, see a friend of ours and a, a colleague of dad's. And he's in the same business. Well, I wasn't too sure what dad's business was, but I saw a film. So I had some idea, but I wasn't too sure because he always had a camera around his neck. And I thought he also ran hospitals, which he was doing at the time for the Shriners hospitals for the children. But he put me in the car and I said, oh, really? I said, well, he's a friend of yours. And what do you do? And he said, Oh, we were just kind of in the same business, but you'll really, you'll like him, but he's got eight kids and you're going to be able to go and play with all his kids in this big house. And it was Chaplin in Vivier, Mm. but they didn't really explain anything more until years later. Then I kind of, you know, I figured it out. How interesting. Did you ever meet Keaton? I'm curious. No, I never met Keaton, but there's some great pictures of Keaton and Harold at the Berlin Film Festival and they both got awards and there's some pictures of them at the Eastman house. They were fairly friendly, I think, but, and they'd show up at different, you know, film festivals because at that point in the sixties, you know, Chaplin was living in Switzerland. He wasn't allowed back into America. Mm. He was exiled until he came back and picked up his Oscar in 1971, 72. It's a fascinating timeline, uh, all of their careers and how they intersected. Just in terms of differentiating between the three in particular, you think about Lloyd, you know, he's he's this everyman, as, as both of you were talking about. He's billed as the boy here, but yeah, he's this glasses character, right? And he has this, uh, you know, kind of uh, everyman look. He's he's He looks more intelligent, perhaps, and, and yet he's fallible in, in a lot of ways. And he uses improvisational resourcefulness to ingeniously get out of jams. Now, I know Keaton does that a lot in his movies, too. But like, for instance, in Safety Last, you know, he and his roommate, they hang hilariously beneath coats on hooks from the landlady. He's crawling, you know, beside a box to uh, hide and get away from the floor walker. When he falls through the, the opening on the sidewalk, he immediately does push-ups to save face. All of these really clever, on-the-spot, improvisational turns of comedy. Then you think about Chaplin, right? He infuses more sentimentality, more emotionality, maybe more pathos into his characters and situations. Any comment here from either of you, just in terms of differentiating between the the three geniuses? Well, Harold always said that he loved playing the man on the street, and that the only the only 
talisman he had were the glasses instead of the mustache or the stone face. And he said one of the things that that he really liked about that, he said, is my romances with the leading ladies always seem more real to the audiences because ah, okay. Keaton was always very stoic about everything. He didn't really react to anything. Right. And then Chaplin was a kind of a character that was always a friend of somebody's. And then Langdon was this kind of strange baby man. It was kind of really weird. So, But he said, my romances, unlike uh, the other competitors, everybody took them seriously because I was the guy off the street. And he, he's right. That's 100% <laughs> right. I think he was really the father of romantic comedy, of rom-coms. Wow. Because every film except for Hot Water, what he put, where he played a married man, and after he did that, uh, he just said, you know, I couldn't get as much comedy and a much stretch out of the character being married than being a single guy. Hmm. And he never played a married man again. And if you look at Hot Water, it's kind of like Meet the Folks, you know, the film. Um, it's funny. It's it, 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 And he just he never did that again. So he was very focused on that romantic line and the chase to get the girl. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of credence, a lot of evidence uh, to back up what you were saying in terms of maybe the progenitor or the father of the rom-com. Now, I don't want to overthink a classic comedy that speaks for itself, but are there any themes or messages that can be taken from Safety Last? I think it's all about just keep in, you know, pressuring and endeavoring and keep trying to work hard and You'll overcome the obstacles, you know, whether it's a relationship with a girl or dealing with your boss at the department store or climbing a skyscraper. Okay. Just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep keep pushing. You'll make it. You'll be okay. Yeah, persistence. He says that in a lot of his movies, and I think that's cool. Mm -hmm. It's so funny, Eric, that you mentioned a message movie because <laughs> one of the best stories about Harold was he, you know, he kicked off the entire verbal history program at the AFI, they actually named it after him, which it's still named after him. The Harold Lloyd Master yeah. Seminars. We had shown the freshman for the very first night that that was going to happen. And then the freshman was going to be followed by uh, this Q&A by a bunch of the students. And one of the students stood up and said, <clears throat> Mr. Lloyd, um, I really liked your movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. But we're taught these days to make message movies. We we have to make a message. What was the message in this movie? And without missing the beat, he said the message was to make money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What's that famous Hitchcock line uh, when he's asked by an actor, what's my motivation? And he says, your salary. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, Harold was never out to make a message, but he was out to kind of project an image mm -hmm. of this guy who just never gave up. And I think, I think people responded to that, especially young men in those days seeing that. And I think that's what's really important about that movie, because it's a good example of Lloyd's character in general being that guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about if there is a message to be taken away, as you said, right? Adapting quickly to your environment, thinking fast on your feet, maybe following a fake-it-till-you-make-it philosophy. Well, it also is no matter what obstacle is in front of you, just keep going. Right. And you'll be okay. Absolutely. Yeah. But also, I think I think the movie has a bit of a theme, even if it's not intentional, but good and bad timing, right? Because the boy, he's pressured to arrive at work on time, and frequently it appears that time is not on his side. Uh, yet an actual clock face serves as a lifeline, and he you know, continually has the benefit of fortuitous timing. And you think about all the visual nods in Safety Last to time. As I said, the clock face, his body swinging like a pendulum, and then the punch clock, the work time clock. They're having a bit of thematic fun, I think. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, 
you know how those movies were made as gag men would get into a room and think up a bunch of gags. Oh yeah. In this case, gags on the side of a building because mm -hmm. he wanted to make a movie and then they would back the story in once they had all the gags figured out. So it's, it's the way it's the opposite way things are done today. Right. The whole story. And then you have to figure out the gags that go along with it, whether they're action gags or horror gags or whatever they are. But in those days they, they worked backwards. They figured, well, this will be great. This will get a laugh. That, you know, what if we did a thing where a guy's between a trolley and a car, and and the car starts to pull away, and he's spread eagle, and he has, and he falls on the ground. And <laughs> what if we do a thing where he's hiding in a laundry truck? What I mean, they had all these funny ideas. Then they backed the story into it. Yeah, so interesting, isn't it? I think the film is all the more evergreen for even despite its one hundred year vintage for a theme of, you know, economic and practical challenges of surviving and coping in an increasingly industrialized metropolis. Because, you know, as we see, for example, in like Modern Times by Chaplin and some other films by these three, you know, he, he really is trying to get ahead and just survive for that matter in this throbbing metropolis from the public transportation that can accommodate him to the throngs of angry customers seeking service in this busy department store. The boy, he's faced with one obstacle after another in an you know increasingly industrialized world. But, but as Sue pointed out earlier, the reason that he's putting himself in these positions and going through all this is to be successful so he can start a family life. Yes. You know, be with the girl he loves. I mean, this is the, you know, the American dream, and a lot of people were pursuing this. So it really resonated with a lot of people because a lot of people were in the same boat. Good point. And the other thing was when he interfaced with other actors in the movie, you know, he had a form of a warmth, a charm, a camaraderie with them, like they were really personal friends, whether they were or weren't. He used to keep a stock company together. But it's it's funny, you know, he was so madly in love with the girl that was coming to town. But there's that whole little piece with the little sales girl that always is covering him or sending him a note or flipping his hair or fixing his jacket, you know, in the department store. He's still flirting around with other people. You know, he's playful. Yes. He has a very up attitude about him. He has different layers to that character that I think had much more depth than in some, in some ways as Chaplin's character, mm -hmm. which you knew who he was, what he was, because he was so well-established as being the little tramp. Sure. And Keaton, he didn't give too much away because he was the stone face and didn't want to show that much of emotion. But Harold had a, a whole vast stream of different emotions from to children, to older women, like the little grandmother, the little lady in the safety last in the sales scene, when he says, who dropped that $50 bill? <laughs> That's great. And everybody goes to the floor and the little lady standing there. And she played his grandmother and grandma's boy. And I think she died just recent after the movie, a few, six months after that movie was made. But he had a charming quality of connecting with her that was different than the girl that was flirting with him, who, who was a sales clerk or anybody, or how he interfaced with Mitt. You know, it was all different. So interesting. But it was all real. Now it says a lot about uh, his talents and uh, his personality, of course. You know, we are celebrating the centennial of Safety Last, and birthdays are all about getting presents, right? But it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. That's what I contend. So what is Safety Last's greatest gift to viewers? I think it's a gift to enjoy somebody that they haven't seen in years. He's going to start playing in theaters this year oh, wow. with safety last. And I think it's a gift of, he was the American comedian. 
And he set a number of things in place and put down really basic footprints on being, number one, an actor that did his own stunts, a thrill actor, and how an actor went into being a producer. And also how he made the second plot of a line in all his films as being the rom a romantic lead of romantic comedy and making romantic comedy what it is today. I think he's really the father of the rom-com. No, I would agree. You've convinced me there, and that was well-spoken. Yeah, Richard, what do you think? I think The Gift of Safety Lasts is it's such a great view of 1923 Americana, and that's seen through the eyes of a guy who really represented the everyman off the street, uh, who was trying to achieve something and achieved it. So I think it spoke to the audiences in 1923 is this is what you can achieve if you try hard enough in it, and look at the world I'm in and look at the cars and the buildings and the people. It's just a really good view of the of the country at the time seen through the eyes of this great comedian. Can't argue. Well put. So what's up next for each of you? Suzanne, you were mentioning that your grandfather's works are coming back to theaters? Yes, actually, uh, we have a number of bookings. The Film Forum is going to run a series and show 25 Lloyd films. Is that right? Uh, through April and May every weekend. Wow. Are you going to be there? Yes, I'll be there on April 1st uh, at the Film Forum in New York with Bruce Goldstein and also April 2nd where we're going to show Why Worry and Why Worry uh, will have its 100th anniversary on uh, in September of this year. Oh, cool. Anything else coming up for you, Suzanne, before we turn to Richard? I'm going to do a show on May 1st in Vancouver at the Orpheum, and then on May 5th at Eastman House in Rochester, New York, and then I'll be in Detroit on May 18th, 19th, and 20th at the Redford Theater. When you say a show, what, what does that encompass? The, all these shows encompass live music, and we'll show a film, uh, a Lloyd film with live accompaniment, Okay. whether it's an orchestra or an ensemble or a organist. Gotcha. All right. Wow. And if you're out on the West Coast in Orange County and Newport, Safety Lass is going to play April 19th at the uh, Regal Plaza Theater right in South Coast Plaza. Is there a website you want to give listeners uh, you know, a nod you to? You can go to haroldloyd.com which is his official website, and it lists screenings. Oh, fantastic. And if anybody wants more information, it has bios, it has photographs, it has film stills, and we have an official Harold Lloyd Facebook page. Great stuff. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, Richard, what's up on your uh, docket here? What's coming up? Well, I've been in show business for almost 67 years. <clears throat> don't, say that, don't say that too loudly. <laughs> Um, I basically retired from the sitcom business after directing 719 episodes. You have a long IMDb oh. resume there. Sir. Oh, so I'm starting a whole new career at my age now. And that has to do with this collection that I've been working on for 50 years. I have the largest collection in the world of science fiction, fantasy, and horror film memorabilia. So cool. You, I remember Forrest Ackerman, right? Uh, with Famous Monsters, had a big one. And and uh, who's the other uh, special effects guy who had a big collection? Bob Byrne. Yes. You often see the, the, them show off their stuff. And then there's Guillermo del Toro has a lot of stuff. But uh, boy, you probably have uh, quite a few collectibles too, huh? Yeah, I actually have a lot more than any of those guys. But I'm putting it in a show. It's in a show. It's in a pop-up right now on Hollywood Boulevard called Icons of Darkness. And I'm moving that entire thing to Las Vegas. 
um, under the NGM Resorts banner. So that's going to be really, really cool. That's really where I'm concentrating all my effort now, which has nothing to do with the TV sitcom business. And the other thing, soon I have a project featuring some 3D photographs that Harold shot of Marilyn Monroe in 1952. Is that right? Yeah, we have this project. It's called Meeting Marilyn, where you get to go into her apartment in 1952. This would be also set up in, in Las Vegas. You get to go see a simulation of her apartment from 1952, but she's actually in there because all of these photographs that were done by Harold in her apartment, especially for the Life magazine photograph that Philippe Halsman shot in, 19, in uh, 1952. All of those photographs behind the scenes and all the stuff of her sitting around her apartment when they had the sessions there are going to be in this place where you can actually go into her apartment and meet her. When I say meet her, we're going to take the lenticular two and a quarter right left split pictures of her in 3D. Hmm. And we're going to, through AI, we're going to animate them so that she'll talk to you. Oh, how fascinating. One step removed from a hologram, right? <laughs> That's right. And the thing is, it's a really, really, really good celebration of Marilyn. It's not negative. It's not like the movie Blonde. It's okay. something that talks about all of her trials and tribulations. It celebrates her when she was 26, mm -hmm. just coming out of being a, a starlet into superstardom. And she's beautiful and it's a fun thing. And she uh, she's going to sound great, look great. The photographs are gorgeous. So that's really cool too. We're we're working on that, and that's uh, I'm excited about that just as, just as much as I am about the science fiction and horror stuff. Oh wow, you got a lot going on, sir. Uh, so where can people learn more about these uh, efforts and events? Is there a website? Well, Icons of Darkness has um, a website right now. If anybody wants mm -hmm. to go to iconsofdarkness.com, they can see the collection or some of it. Read about me. Read about what I'm doing. The Maryland thing is still in pitch stages, so it's it, we're not quite ready to do that but i'm sure that'll come up pretty soon because we're i mean working on it every day so and it's really awesome well keep up the great work with all of your projects and events and i want to thank each of you personally from the heart for taking a deep dive with me into safety last suzanne talking about your grandfather richard talking about a man who greatly influenced you it was such a pleasure talking to both of you today thanks for your time eric it was fun Thank you, Eric. Thank you for honoring his work, his memory. And all I can say is I think Enrich feels the same way. It's been really great over all these years of working with Harold. And it brings me great joy when I show a Lloyd film and they've never seen him or haven't heard about him at all. And they walk out and go, well, that was just unbelievable. That was terrific. And they walk out of the movie theater with such a good feeling and a brightness about them and a kind of a twinkle in their eye and a smile on their face and go, that was just really fun. And that's what he made those films for. It's amazing that after a hundred years, he still gets the same reaction yes. out of his audience. And it just thrills me. And I love the way kids react to him because I teach a lot of grammar school children about Harold mm -hmm. in, in schools. And, and it's amazing. They, they don't want it. They just connect with him. And I think that's a real gift that he had with people. Certainly. Like Keaton and Chaplin, I'm sure you could show his films to people from other countries who don't even speak English. And, uh, you know, it translates universally evergreen. It will never get old. So keep up the great work. All right. Thanks. Thank you. A great big bow of gratitude to Richard and Suzanne for joining me in an ascent up the high mountaintop of mirth that is Safety Last and for sharing their memories and knowledge about this film and its cherished star. All right, in lieu of standing ovations this month, I've got some exciting news to share with y'all. Cineversary has its own website. <laughs>
That's right. We actually now have a vanity URL that's really easy to remember, which will take you to a freshly designed portal where you can quickly access the latest episode of your favorite podcast, as well as all 57 of our previous episodes. Now it's a lot easier to spread the good word about our show to your friends and fam. You merely tell them to visit Cineversary.com. Pretty simple, right? Again, Cineversary.com is our new website address. Secondly, yes, there's more. We have a custom email address just for you. If you ever want to share feedback on our show, offer suggestions for future installments, maybe you have a question about Cineversary, just send it to us at Cineversarypodcast at gmail.com. That is the dedicated email address just for this show. Also, you can really help this show grow by spreading the good word about the Cineversary Podcast to your peeps. Even better, please leave a positive online review and rating. That significantly helps us get discovered by new listeners. It makes a big difference. So if you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Stitcher, you simply search for the Cineversary page. You look around for a link that says something like reviews or ratings. Click that and leave a review and or rating. While you're at it, take a moment to like us on Facebook. Yes, we have a presence there as well. Oh, almost forgot. We are up in that Twitter thing, too. Our handle is at Cineversarypod, P-O-D, or you can easily tweet or follow us. So check that out, too. Lastly, have you checked out my Cineverse Group website? Yeah, it's easy to get confused by these similar-sounding names, Cineversary, Cineverse, Tomato, Tomato. But Cineverse is actually the name of my private film discussion group I founded back in 2005 that continues to meet weekly on Zoom. So every week, the Cineverse group watches, researches, and discusses a different movie, and I create a summary write-up, call it a mini-essay if you will, on that movie that gets posted to the Cineverse group blog. If you enjoy reading in-depth content that examines different discussion-worthy motion pictures, including classic Hollywood movies, independent features, foreign masterworks, modern films, and silent-era standouts, I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com. Now that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group.com. To give you a taste of some of the latest posts, for example, uh, I've recently written about the highly acclaimed Romanian film The Death of Mr. Lazarescu, Spielberg's AI Artificial Intelligence, Save the Tiger, featuring an Oscar-winning performance by Jack Lemmon, the police procedural noir detective story, the critically lauded 45 Years, Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon, and Chaplin's Modern Times. Plus, every posted article includes a link to a recording of our group discussion of that particular movie, with me leading the conversation as moderator. So if you dig what I'm doing on this podcast, you might want to give a listen to some of our Cineverse Group recordings, which are podcasts of a different sort. Again, head over to cineversegroup.com, where you can check out some interesting text and audio content on a variety of films not necessarily celebrating a milestone anniversary. Hmm, what's on tap for May? Next month, we head to Italy and pay homage to perhaps the most important and revered filmmaker ever to hail from that country and one of his indisputable masterpieces. Join me in May as we celebrate the 60th birthday of Eight and a Half, directed by Federico Fellini, originally released in 1963. Until that time, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. They're not getting older, they are getting better. Thanks for giving us a listen. Thank you.